Hello, and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, uh, rated one of the top most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide back in January of this year. Guernsey as a jurisdiction is helping lead the way in the development of green and sustainable finance. And as part of that, we have this podcast series where we speak to and learn from some of the leading global figures in the field. Hello, my name is Dr. Andy Slane. I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy at We Are Guernsey, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector and chairman of our industry steering group, Guernsey Green Finance. And today I'm delighted to be speaking to Phil Davis, Director of ESG at Helios Investment Partners. Hello, Phil. Hi, Andy. Thank you very much for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so Helios Investment Partners is the largest Africa-focused private investment firm founded in 2004, managing private equity and credit capital in excess of about sort of $3.6 billion. We're also the largest emerging market-focused private equity firm and only the second mainstream private equity firm globally to receive a B Corp certification. Phil, that's great to have you join us on the podcast. I mean, quite frankly, um, it's brilliant to have you on the guard. It's we everyone's not aware of Helios's you know commitment to to Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, and actually the reason why we're so one of the reasons why we're so thrilled to have you join us. So thank you for joining us. Is that last um, last September we had Gareth Phillips from the African Development Bank on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and he was really interesting and understanding you know just how what an impact private equity can have in the. Uh, in the African uh, continent. And so fantastic to have you today to hear out your views about private equity, ESG, and investing or impact investing in Africa. So I want to start off with a, you know, an easy start of a question for 10, as it were. Maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about your investment philo- philosophies, put my teeth back in there, and the approach to ESG and impact investing at Helios. Yeah, absolutely. So ESG and impact has been at the heart of everything that the firm has done since it was founded in 2004. And as I said in my intro, I think this deep commitment has been further demonstrated by our B Corp certification and the creation of my role. My personal belief is that there is currently a lot of capital looking for both good financial return and positive impact. And this market is only growing and if anything has been accelerated by the COVID-19 crisis. I think moving forwards, we will also see a broader acceptance that all investments have impact, but there will be a drive towards ensuring it is intentionally positive. As a result, I hope that impact investing in some ways ceases to be viewed as a niche investment strategy and simply becomes an an essential part of investing. And I believe that this uh, growing acceptance, as well as increased disclosure and transparency, will bring ESG and impact together to help to build better and more resilient businesses in the future. I think the advantages of this approach is that it can be applied to the full investment portfolio rather than just a small niche. Our impact um, and ESG strategies focus on driving change on issues that we believe are systematically important and financially material across our portfolio and are also linked to 11 of the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. This strategy is uh, underpinned by our focus on sort of six mutually reinforcing themes that include creating jobs and local economic development, fostering community ties, building diverse and engaged teams, strengthening climate resilience and access to clean energy, investing in sustainable growth markets, and establishing the principles of strong governance. 
Well, that's fascinating. And those six, um, those six areas very much aligned with some serious, I mean, it's easy for us in the West to, um, you know, to take for granted some of, the th- some of the impacts that you're trying to make through the, your investments uh, in, into Africa. I mentioned Gareth Phillips earlier uh, in terms of his podcast, because actually the, that, pod, that, that conversation in itself really did bring home for me, the real world implications of climate change and how places particularly like Africa will be you know, experiencing the effects probably sooner than ourselves, but in a much more uh, intense level. So you, you've talked about the SDGs just there, you referred to them, but in terms of the what I call the global policy conversation, both around net zero, the energy transition and the SDGs, how do you see the impact on them on, on that continent and the the positive impact that investments can have. Yeah, so it probably won't surprise you that I and the Helios are committed to realising the objectives of the Paris Climate Accord, which are fundamental, I think, for securing the future of business and our children's future. However, in Africa, I do think it is vitally important to strike the right balance between well-intentioned climate change policy and the implications to local economic development and the delivery of other commitments such as the SDGs. We need to recognise that Africa represents more than 17% of the global population, but is currently only responsible for less than 4% of um, greenhouse gas emissions. Africa is also likely to experience the second highest percentage increase in primary energy demand after India between now and 2050. We of course need to ensure that the climate change impact of future growth is limited as much as possible. But I do think we also have to recognize that developed countries and economies were built off the back of greenhouse gas emissions being released into the air for the last 200 years. And the World Economic Forum recently published an interesting statistic that said that if Sub-Saharan Africa tripled its electricity consumption to natural gas, it would only add 1% to global emissions. Therefore, Helios, we believe that accelerating energy access and delivering a just energy transition will result in positive economic outcomes, which can align with the Paris Climate Accord objectives. And we think that this can be achieved through further investment in renewables, switching coal and liquid fuels to gas to decarbonize power generation and transportation, replacing charcoal, biomass and kerosene currently used by over 700 million Africans with cooking gas and building out the infrastructure that supports a future zero carbon system, which might include carbon capture and storage and upgrading existing infrastructure to transport low carbon fuels such as hydrogen and ammonia which can be abundantly produced in Africa. Yeah you mentioned the just transition point now you sort of I was thinking of that um, uh, just as you said it is it fair to say that the the concept of a just transition for Africa is very different to what we sort of you know in our armchairs in the cozy west uh, might consider Um, and, and Gareth was making a very similar point do you find it uh, an easy an easy sell uh, making those points and with respect to you know investment in, in alternative foods or transition technologies in terms of when you're having conversations uh, both generally but also with investors? Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily an easy sell, but I do think um, there is growing recognition that 
the just energy transition is really important. Um, and it's not just investors, it's governments that also need to be aware of this, especially going into the sort of COP26 uh, climate conference um, later this year. Um, I think there needs to be a real acknowledgement that you know there are parts of the world where um, further support will be needed and, and some flexibility essentially, and that there's gonna be um, a greater need for developed countries to maybe make further commitments uh, in order to sort of allow more developing countries to sort of um, transition over a longer period of time, essentially. So in terms of NDCs, you're sort of saying maybe a bit of a change in, in the mix there, possibly? Possibly, yeah. That's what I hope, anyway. Because, hmm. I mean, again, uh, I've, I think I've shared this with you before, but I, I'm an IPCC reviewer, and obviously this, this you can't give away what, what's actually in, in the report itself, but the, the, the cross-border capital flows um, is actually something that's been long been recognised um, as something that needs, there's a bit of a log jam there, and, and a lot of this investment um, in this area is happening, you know, intra our region. So a lot of the Western capital goes to Western investments. And what's great about you guys is that you're focused on Africa and focused to generally making making that impact. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the impacts you're looking at is again, this comes back to a conversation with with Gareth, was uh, the, the the need to do adaptation, not being quite as sexy as uh, as mitigation. Do you find there's a, a ready supply for of appetite for adaptation projects? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, capital flows going into sort of adaptation as well. Um, you know, we have the uh, Green Climate Fund, which was um, a fund that was um, set up out of the Paris Agreement. It's the world's largest climate fund, you know, that is mandated to support developing countries, raise and realise their national determined contributions and also um, climate resilient pathways as well. I saw also in, 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 in reporting last sort of September, October about uh, new investments from Helios um, are, are in that, in that, um, in that fund. So, um, you know, all, all jolly good stuff. So I'll come back to it because I mean, particularly with the, with the aspects of, you know, investment in sub-Saharan Africa uh, being generally your thing, but we'll come back to that, that topic you know, for our listeners shortly. Just for a moment, if I may, uh, to come up to another something else we talked about in preparation for this uh, for this podcast was the development of standards and, and regulations, and you know how this how this helped the flow of capital, or you know did it help the flow of capital? Um, we, we we saw recently the you know, obviously the SFDR went live from the European Union. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some comments about you know whether or not uh, it would become uh, the de facto standard globally. Um, but there's an increasing amount of, of different uh, sort of noise in this space, the World Economic Forum, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Boards. Do you feel there's a need for a universal reporting standard for the, for particularly for the work that you're doing, whether you're investing in, you know, do, you, do, do you feel it's necessary? And if you do, do you see a front runner emerging? Yeah, so the, the lack of a universal international reporting standard is a real challenge. And I think it has been a, a factor in the relatively slow adoption of increased disclosure and transparency of ESG performance. And, you know, people just don't know which metrics or what they should be using. However, I think we are starting to see consolidation in the market. So the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB 
and the International Integrated Reporting Council, IIRC, are to merge into one organization in 2021 with the aim of offering investors and companies a comprehensive corporate reporting framework to drive global sustainability performance. Uh, the newly formed organization will be called the Value Reporting Foundation. Actually, SASB, the IRC, the EDP charity, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, and the Global Reporting Initiative have all committed to working towards a comprehensive corporate reporting system. As you mentioned, the EU has decided to develop its own set of metrics as part of the sustainable finance disclosure regulations. It will be interesting to see how these are received and adopted, but as a sustainability and assurance specialist, I, I do see some challenges with those. I think just finally, um, the World Economic Forum developed a core set of common metrics disclosures um, on non-financial factors for investors and other stakeholders in 2020. These uh, stakeholder capitalism metrics and disclosures can be used by companies essentially to align their mainstream reporting on performance against ESG indicators and track their contribution towards the SDGs. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the WEF standards are some you know, one of a particular favourite of mine because they have the, uh, the attractiveness of simplicity, quite frankly, you know, in comparison. But um, I think there you know, is a good initiative in that area. Um, I agree with you, though, you know, there's, there's, there's so much, there's so, so many different ones in this standard, a, a, a commonality would be pretty helpful. I will ask, because we, we, we developed our own private equity principles um, for, for, for or green private equity principles last year. Uh, and uh, Tim Haymes, the ex-DG of the BBCA, said they had the, the beauty of simplicity and straightforwardness. In the PE space itself, um, have you seen any particular aspects that are missing? You know, those, I've heard of that, uh, the, the Paris, the Climate Initiative sort of guys have been um, sort of make dr dr drungle drums with the, um, the institutional investors group that they're looking to develop a set of standards. Do you feel mm -hmm. it's necessary for something separate in this space in terms of maybe you know, the assistance with net zero with your portfolio companies? Is there, a, is there anything that's missing? Uh, yeah, I think we see, um, as you mentioned, um, private equity initiatives around uh, climate change, around diversity. Um, there's also ones around sort of impact. I think one area which I see is sort of upcoming, um, which I think is is quite challenging and will certainly need some guidance is around sort of natural capital and biodiversity loss. I think it's going to be an increasing area of focus. And actually for a lot of organizations, you know, the issues is, is not always directly in their control and, and is further down their supply chain. And it's, it's quite difficult to tangibly measure and, and understand the impact you're having to natural capital and biodiversity loss. And I think as there's greater focus and scrutiny on it there's going to be need to be sort of initiatives and support for you know private equity and other asset classes in order to sort of make some tangible progress on that and obviously you know natural capital does also link into sort of climate change as well so you know there is obviously those connections there as, as well yeah natural capital is obviously the, the tnfd and it's a it's the latest sort of development in this area um, I just wondered if, uh, if you, you know, what your views are. Some people have said that there's potentially that we, we risk overcomplicating uh, 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 matters and such. You know, one of the beauties of the, 
uh, the capitalist system for the last couple of hundred years was, you know, the focus on financial return uh, as your single metric or shareholder value. And if you, if you, if you got into the, the variant of the last 50 years, do you, uh, do you have views on how, com- how much more complication you can have to your investment process? You know, at the end of the day, private equity is pretty, it's at the naked end of capitalism. Uh, that's probably an unfair, but you know, if you, if you get my gist is that, is, is there a, a concern that you have in terms of the complicated, you know, um, the complications and the difficulty in some of this stuff that we're, we're looking to try and um, do for ourselves? Yeah, I think it is a challenge. Um, obviously, ESG is is very broad in nature and has expanded over time and, and may continue to expand over time as well. So obviously, we do run the risk of making things overly complicated. And, you know, I think introducing aspects in a sort of phased approach does help. Um and, you know, we've even seen that with the um, sustainable finance disclosure regulations. They're starting off with a smaller set of KPIs, which I'm sure will expand over time. Um, the TNFD you mentioned, I think, is, is, is probably a needed initiative. I think it's building off the success of the TCFD and will help to sort of improve the disclosure and transparency of, of natural capital. Um, I think one of the challenges and that I really see is actually with greater focus on these issues, the need for sort of resource, um, you know, within organisations that have the sort of um, special skills and, and knowledge. Um, we're already seeing, you know, a lot of firms now hiring dedicated resources internally and i think that will continue to grow but obviously there needs to be the um individuals coming through in order to sort of feed that demand so i think there is potentially a a supply issue around sort of esg um specialist skills and experience yeah interesting you say that we um Guernsey is a member of the un's sc4s um network and one of the pieces of research that was published back end of last year was uh, a shortfall of skilled practitioners in this space uh, or the projections for it. So that's interesting that you you mentioned that's becoming a concern. Um, but on that point though, I mean, in terms of uh, the actual reporting and the requirements themselves, what is it that you're, you know, your investors are after, you know, so you're, you're there, you're at the coal face, you're you know, developing an ESG process or develop, have developed what is it that people are looking in terms of the reporting presently? What, what reassurance can you provide when you're looking at your investments uh, in Africa? Yeah, I think investors um, increasingly looking to sort of one, understand, um, you know, across the portfolio, you know, many of them may have received information on case studies, you know, that highlight good performance. But what I'm seeing is a greater need for, you know, being able to see performance across the portfolio across a, a broader a broader range of issues now and and also a particular focus around climate change and you know understanding what the um, GH uh, the greenhouse gas emissions are across the portfolio and I think from that obviously it will be a focus around so what are you doing to sort of reduce them you know and, and obviously that's the obvious next stage in terms of you know just increase um disclosure and transparency there's going to be increased pressure on us to sort of show progress towards you know reducing those emissions over time and i suppose i'm going to throw a curveball at you now my apologies because we haven't rehearsed this one at all but 
do you get investors coming along and saying, look, I'm only investing in a net zero fund. Um, you know, if, if it's not net zero or if there's a transition path to net zero, uh, I'm not interested. Or, and if not, how, how soon do you think you'll be when, until that day has come? Um, we've not, uh, in terms of Helios, had um, a sort of LP that, or investor that has indicated that they wouldn't uh, invest in our fund. But I do think, um, you know, the Net Zero Alliance um, is, is growing and there's going to be increasing pressure um, for private equity firms such as ourselves to sort of move towards a sort of Net Zero um, you know, uh, commitment to make a sort of net zero commitment. I can certainly see that, you know, going forwards. And again, so to, to bring it back across to sort of South Africa and then the just transition, you know, it's yeah. all very well and good for us to talk about net zero and you know, moan about, you know, is it 20, 50, 45, 40, 35, 30? So I'm mimicking my son here, being able to count my fives backwards. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, we, we did that to go to each lockdown. Um, but in terms of for Africa, yeah, the, the bar is different. The, uh, the, the goals yeah. are different and the objectives are different. So, you know, is, is the point that you made about the, the, the 17% of the population wears 4% of the emissions. You know, there's got yeah. to be something there. You've alluded to the fact that you think that maybe um, COP26, you might see some developments this year. I do want to just bring us back to that. Um, and I think some of the sort of the mobilisation agenda, the, the UK has set out one of its four key priorities for this uh, for, the, for this round. Um, mobilisation of capital to emerging markets and of developing economies, cross-border capital flows, which we touched on previously. In terms of these themes, do you see any mechanisms that can help speed up this mobilisation of capital agenda? You know, you're the coalface. You guys are actually one of the few people really specialising in getting capital to where it's most needed in sub-Saharan Africa. How do you think the PE industry can show leadership in this particular area? Or do you think it's possible? Mm. So I think as a private investor in Africa that is climate sensitive, um, we'd like to see sort of blended finance mechanisms that can channel both public and, and private finance together. This should be on commercial terms and, and through this approach, look to maximize the impact that both are able to deliver. Um, there, I think there is capital out there, um, but I think some of the challenges is, is the speed in which it's being deployed is just not fast enough. And, um, you know, for example, I mentioned the sort of Green Climate Fund is meant to be channeling 100 billion dollars per year to address the pressing mitigation and adaptation needs of developing countries. But, you know, the accreditation and project due diligence processes can take months or even years to complete. And I think at COP26 this year, there needs to be a focus on processes and resources available to limit the administrative bureaucracy and burden and, and to, to speed up the deployment of capital, essentially. Actually, that's you mentioned the word blended finance. Actually, that's two words. So you mentioned the phrase blended finance. I know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. I'd venture a guess that not every listener that we have will know what we're talking about. Do you think there's a there's a role for I hate to phrase, the, the templatization of some of this stuff? You know, to actually to educate the market that this is specifically what's required, or do you reckon it's it's fine that the specialists know what they're doing? Yeah, I think the, the, the opportunity that Blender's finance provides is the opportunity to sort of make something that 
maybe a private investor might look at and think it's just not commercially viable within the timeframes, you know, that are available, that actually bringing public finance into that gives a sort of buffer, essentially, in terms of um, making that maybe project viable in the first year or two, which can then hopefully be seen as a sort of long-term or medium-term sort of growth trajectory, essentially, and make a, a project that may have been overlooked into something that is commercially viable in the sort of medium to longer term. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm with you there. And I think we've made the, we're making the point ourselves that you know, being, more people being aware of this is a mechanism that can allow capital, um, I think it's very, I think it would be a very important agenda item this year. Um, yeah. You know, we've, we've talked about this in, in the past, um, and again, we, we, again with uh, with Gareth, we, we talked about this, and we've had Justin Sykes, our very own from Guernsey, we've talked about this topic. So I do think I'm going to ask you to agree with me because if, if you didn't, it'd be very embarrassing. But, <laughs> but in terms of a COP26 agenda, I do think it would be really helpful this year. I mean, you appreciate in Guernsey we're a you know, well-developed private equity industry, 120 billion in uh, you know of, of pre funds under administration. Mm. We've been looking at the, you know, the private equity model, the, the typical five to seven year investment horizon. We had Tim Haynes, like I said last year, looking at this this too, and sort of like we've been having this discussion about, you know, the the, the potential mismatch between the, the the life cycle of the assets that you need to be involved in with the, with the typical investment horizon, um, with with the net zero. Um, do you have any thoughts on that mm-hmm. particular point in terms of the PE industry and sustainability? Is there is net zero portfolios? Is there you know, issues with regard to pricing of assets? Has that been fully factored in yet by the, by the industry? Yeah. In the investment horizons, have we quite caught up with, you know, Kearney's tragedy of the horizons, quite, quite frankly? Yeah. So in terms of how I think, you know, net zero, zero portfolios will play out in, in private equity, I, I don't think climate change is going to significantly influence or fundamentally change the current five to seven year sort of fund model. Although we might see specific renewable and sustainable energy funds, you know, with different timelines and and return profiles that will attract, you know, a particular type of investor, for example. Um, I think as a private equity investor, we have to recognize that, you know, we won't see our portfolio companies through their net zero journeys as you know, the portfolio is likely to change four to six times between now and 2050. Instead, I think the focus should be on putting these companies on a pathway to sort of net zero by establishing credible plans that detail short, medium and long-term actions, but acknowledging that this plan will need to develop and evolve as the business changes. I think in terms of um, your question on sort of adequate pricing of assets and risks, I do think we are at the sort of early stages of understanding this. However, I think in, in five to seven years time, um, there will be a growing expectation that companies will have developed you know, cr- these credible plans, net zero action plans, and, we'll, and this will become a sort of standard vendor document on exit. And that companies that have not developed such plans should expect a reduced valuation as investors look to price in this risk and could be used as a test for assessing the strength and quality of the company's management team as well. You know, some might view my sort of timeline of five to seven years as ambitious, but I would remind people of when they first heard of Net Zero, or even a time when climate change was discussed so regularly, 
um, even during an ongoing pandemic. I think this agenda has moved significantly in just a couple of years and the pace of action is accelerating. So I think there is likely to be significant progress um, in the next five to seven years um, on this whole agenda, as, uh, not just climate change, but on other issues as well. well that was, I mean, not to blow sunshine, that was a really, really good answer. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not marking you out of 10, but you, know, but you get my gist. I mean, that was a really concise, I'm totally in, in total agreement with what you've just said there. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're absolutely right. If you look at the you know, TCFD, it still isn't a mandatory reporting the stress tests. It's only the UK and France that are asking for their banks and their insurers to do stress tests. And yet, you know, everyone's talking as if net zero has already happened. So I yeah. think really sobering reality check. And on that, that risk point that we've discussed previously, you know, being able to recognize that it's going to get priced in in the future um you can't you know there's, there's only so fast you can discount the future for those economists out there with hotelings formula but um listen that's really interesting stuff i really do appreciate where you were saying in terms of that uh, that that transition and that's that's going to be a, for me a key thing to take away but you've made some really interesting points here and today and it's and it's a personal question i'd like to sort of end on now and it's a question i ask all my guests is now, how did you in, end up investing in this particular area of sustainability? You know, to, perhaps a little bit about your backstory, because having this, you know, this African and the PE angle is quite a, um, well, it's a unique combination. It's a very fairly unique combination, if I may say. I joined uh, Helios in August of last year in a new role as director of ESG. Uh, the role is focused on supporting our investment teams on the consideration of ESG risks and value creation opportunities, and also working with our portfolio companies to drive both ESG and impact related initiatives. Prior to joining Helios, I was the head of sustainability for Amir at the Carlisle Group and spent 11 years as a consultant at PwC's uh, sustainability and climate change team. My sort of environmental passion goes back to my childhood, really. I, I always had a passion for nature and in particular the, the sea. Um, I was fortunate that my school offered environmental science at A-level, which I think was quite unusual at the time. And it was my favourite subject. And from there, I did an environmental management degree at the University of Birmingham. I then got my first job as sort of a technical environmental consultant and started to work on environmental and health and safety due diligence. Uh, this led into training and developing tools and guides on environmental and social risk management for commercial and development banks and then private equity. And um, in recent years, obviously, the area of sustainable investing has expanded sort of exponentially. And I, and I find private equity such an interesting and unique asset class because as a majority equity owner, we have the ability to shape the business and to put it onto a sustainable growth trajectory which sort of you know reduces operational costs attracts customers and you know top talent in terms of employees and also is now increasingly being valued by investors and also can um, access you know reduced um, uh, sort of cost of uh, lending and financing um, through sort of sustainability and ESG linked loans. Oh, I'm answer. Other than sort of saying, hey, I went to University of Birmingham too. That's, uh, it's always nice to have something in common with my, with, with my guests. Absolutely. It's, uh, one thing that there is also I find quite regularly in common is, is the deep felt commitment that people have to this space. And it's one of those sort of reassuring about the sort of human nature type sort of angles where you have people on the court. And you realise there are so many people out there that share a similar commitment. Um, 
if I may, I just want you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of close on that point about terms of, you know, it's, it's nice to have people, you know, on the podcast where, you know, sharing this common commitment to the, uh, you know, to the sustainability agenda and to, and to understand just how widespread it is. But other than the soft, touchy-feely stuff, it was fantastic to, ha- to, to, to listen to uh, to have the conversation with you today, Phil. Bringing back to that, that just transition theme is something that I think, um, you know, quite regularly when you're working in a, what I'd call, in the practitioner world, um, it can be something that's forgotten about, about the need to be just. And at the end of the day, um, this is about making the world a better place for everybody and f- you know, bringing to the, to the forefront for our listeners the understanding of what this means for sub-Saharan Africa. You know, that 4% of emissions versus 70%, 17% of the population really does bring it home that we do need to appreciate um, the plight of others. And it's amazing, you know, to, to appreciate that, you know, Helios is doing this stuff through a private equity model in sub-Saharan Africa. And for me, that's the big takeaway, how, you know, we talk about being finance, being a force for social good, but private equity being a a force for social good in sub-Saharan Africa really does, you know, it's the case study to the four-dimensional sort of uh, model, as it were. So Phil, I just want to say thank you very much again for your time and your insights today. Brilliant stuff. we have a backed catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcasts. You can check them out by searching for them on Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can find out about more about us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter at, at GSYGreenFinance and at WeAreGuernsey. We'll also have links to Phil and Helios' social media in our show notes. Um, so please do check these out um, to hear more from Phil. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast. Thank you very much, Phil Davis. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.